John, if you just pass out from vertigo, nobody will know because they're only listening to the audio, but they'll hear an audible. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, shit, that was John. <laughs> Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is Not Church with John and Nat Turney. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome back. I did it again, John. Good afternoon. Who the hell knows what time it is people are listening to this? Who the hell am I going to tell you what time it is where you live even? Oh, sweet Lord. The arrogance of it all. Did you just presume time zone? I know. I know. That's what I'm telling you. I'm working on it. There's a lot of, there's a sense of entitlement with me where I just presume to know where people at and where are, and, and that I can make a sentence without fumbling. John, your vertigo is catchy. It's been contagious, so the room is spinning. Yeah. But welcome to the podcast. This is not church. My name is Nat Turney, one of your illustrious hosts with my brother, uh, as always in his magnificent uh, bearded wonder. Holy shit, I'm already off course. John, say hi. Hi. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> what was the pause for? You had to think about that. You're like, wait a minute. There was no setup. I do, he didn't say say hi, John. He's like, <laughs> we have this thing going on for how many how many episodes now? We're like into this, I think sixty, and you have me say say hi, John, every time. This time, just like say hi. I'm like, yeah, no, I thought I'd screw with you. Oh, no. You, you were did. already kind of messed job. up. So good job. Um, I'm, I'm we're back. Um, I don't even know what that means for you today. You may have you may be tuning in for the first time and wondering what the hell is going on. But trust me, uh, we're all wondering the same thing. Yep. Um, but this is what happens when you give a couple of knuckleheads microphones and access to software. So hey, anybody can do it. We are living proof. But we are back with another episode of the podcast, and we are joined today by our good buddy Phil Drysdale. And so I'm going to read you just a little bit about him. We're going to jump straight into a. Uh, an awesome conversation with Phil. So uh, Phil Drysdale is a public speaker, podcaster, researcher, and guide specializing in the area of deconstruction. For the last 10 years, he's helped people navigate the painful journey away from their faith tradition. He does research into the, into the deconstruction community through the Deconstruction Network, runs a regular podcast about deconstruction, and provides free resources to help people on their journeys. As an aside, John Cooper of Skillet has now declared war on Phil Drysdale. <laughs> <laughs> Personally, I think he called him out by name, but he did declare war on all of us people who are going through this deconstruction thing. So, uh, fellow combatant Phil Drysdale, welcome to the battlefield, man. I'm glad you're here. Thank you. <laughs> I'm very sober. Yes, I'm enjoying the fight. <laughs> well, I was just I'm coming to terms with the fact of I've signed up for war. Apparently, uh, yeah, I know. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't realize that we were going to get uh, have war declared on us by another uh, supposed Christian. That seems awfully anti-Jesus. We should have known better having spent enough time in Christianity. Yeah, yeah, that's true. We do have a <laughs> tendency to uh, to uh, kill our own pretty often, don't we? Wage warfare. Yeah. yeah, that's what we do, man. But hey, welcome to the to the podcast. We're glad that you're here. If you wouldn't mind, maybe just give us a quick rundown, more than just the nuts and bolts of stuff I just read, folks, about maybe who you are and what you do, and maybe a little bit sure. of your, your faith background would be great. Sure. Uh, I'm Phil. I grew up a pastor's kid. A lot to be said, I guess. I, I was very serious about my faith my whole life. and really threw myself into it, really ran after being the best Christian I could be. Uh, before long, I kind of knew who the best Christian was me and I went around <laughs> the world telling people I had to be like me, the best Christian. Nice. Uh, not quite, but I, I was very intense, very, very intense. Went through multiple denominations, dozens of churches in my pursuit to find the, 
the right way to be Christian and, and constantly trying to develop myself, grow, get closer to God, be the best Christian you could possibly be, get as many people saved, help as many Christians grow in their faith, all that kind of stuff. Over the years, that developed, that grew, and and I, I've always had that nature, a tenacity. Um, I've kind of got this blend of autism and ADHD that kind of makes me um, quite relentless. And I, I was relentless about having the best faith I could have. You know, if this was real, I want to do it right. You know, if, if there's a heaven and a hell and people are going to hell, if I can connect with the God of the universe, if I can help people get healed or have a better life or whatever, I want to do all that stuff. Um, and so I really ran after that for years, constantly trying to find the better way, the right way to, to do it. Eventually started traveling all over the world, speaking in churches and conferences. I had a podcast. My podcast was number one in religion for about four weeks. I bumped Joseph Prince off his podcast. This is back in like, God, 2011, 12. Wow. Um, so podcasts weren't as big back then probably quite easy. You just had to be like someone that was doing a podcast that wasn't a sermon. That was basically all the work on the religious podcast at that time. Um, but you know, I was, I was really doing the stuff, you know, you, you, cause I always laugh because people talk about people that deconstruct their faith as though they didn't care or like they just right. didn't know the faith enough or they were a committed Christian anyway, or they were somehow wolf in sheep's clothing. Like, I was serious about what I did. But as anyone that constantly asks questions, constantly tries to refine their faith, find the right way to do things, I asked a lot of questions. I, I dug deep into everything. And in doing that, lots of questions came up. Some things didn't survive my questions. Some things had to change, had to adapt, had to evolve. Um, and in doing that process, I started to deconstruct my faith. I started to ask questions of um, lots of things that were maybe very core parts of my faith and work through that all the while traveling around the world, speaking in churches, doing all sorts of uh, wild and wacky things. And one of the things that I found as I was traveling, and, and this is what brings me to where I am now, is um, this is probably in the time period of maybe about 10 to 8, 7 years ago. As I'm traveling, I'm seeing dozens of people come up to me at the end of the services. And they come up to me and they're usually coming up for quote unquote prayer, but they don't really need prayer. They want to ask me some questions. They want to, you know, have a confidence that isn't going to turn on them. And, and they come to me and they go, look, I can't ask my pastor this. I can't tell my wife I'm questioning this. I can't tell anyone in the church I'm asking this question. But do you really believe? Insert here, you know, whatever, right. whatever the question was, there was a hundred million questions, but for some reason, people trusted me. It's probably because my message was so bad, they knew I would never come back to that church. And so they giving uh, some sort of uh, questions to me. But I found over the time that I wasn't the only one that was asking all these questions. I wasn't the only one that was going through these major changes in my face as I was trying to do it right or find out what was true or be more authentic in what I believed and line up those beliefs with my, my faith beliefs. I found that there was dozens of people in every church I went to, there was people that were going through this process and they didn't have anyone they could talk to. They, they literally would tell me things like, I can't even tell my husband this because mm -hmm. I know it would tear our marriage apart if he thought I believed this. Or right. I've not told anyone in this church because I know I would immediately be kicked out of the church. I would have no friends, no family, no community. And you and I know that this is the story of many people today. We yeah. know people that that's happened to. Maybe you guys are people that <laughs> happened to on some level. And so... I quickly realized, you know, I was going around the world and I was teaching and trying to help Christians be better Christians. And I think there's a place for that. If you're a Christian and you want to be a better Christian, you probably need some people to help you be a better Christian. Sure, whatever. But the thing is, in a church, you can't swing a cat without hitting someone that's mm -hmm. going to tell you how to be a better Christian, right? There's no Amen. shortage of straight, older, white men that will tell you how to be a better Christian. 
But if you've got questions, and especially, you know, 10 years ago, there wasn't obvious places to go and talk to someone. There was maybe a few famous people that had done some questioning publicly and gotten shot down gloriously, like someone like Rob Bell. But you couldn't really, you know, shoot Rob Bell at IM or something on whatever was the thing that MSN Messenger or something. You you can quickly (laughs) Skype Rob Bell and go, hey, I've got this question. What do you think? He's a big deal, right? He's writing books and he's, he's, you know, doing all this stuff. So like, there was not really obvious places for people to go and ask these questions. Um, And so I thought, you know what? I'm going to start trying to create a safe space online, talk about these questions, talk about these things, and give people a space to talk to someone about it. Message me anytime. I'm here to chat with you. Never an agenda, not trying to get people to believe what I believe, or I don't talk about what I believe anymore because I I feel that straddles a, a line of ethics. I just don't go down, really. It's not relevant to me or to the people I'm helping what I personally believe. What's relevant is what they believe and what they're wrestling with right now and what they're going to move to next. Um, and so that's what I do now. I, I, I help people. I chat with people every day. Um, I create resources, videos, podcasts. Um, I've got a website that helps people connect with other people that are going through this journey because one of the biggest problems is being lonely, losing community and friends and family. And so finding people in your local area that are going through that process as well, they might not believe the same as you because when you leave deconstruction, you leave your, your conventional Christian faith, you often head in different directions than other people that leave. Yeah, but at absolutely. least you have a similarity of knowing what the journey has been like and where you've come from. And that can be really key. And so helping people do things like that, I do research, um, trying to change the narrative about that. We we touched on that at the beginning, you know, like it's crazy, you know, someone famous deconstructs and somehow, I don't know, the New York Times or something picks up a story on it. And I'm like, really, that's something you want to write about? Okay, cool. Let's drop, you know, the war in Ukraine and let's talk about how John Steingart just deconstructed or whatever, right? right? <laughs> um, so they do, but then they never actually ask John Steingart for a quote or anything, right? Or, or anyone that's actually in the space of deconstruction. They go to like, I don't know, John Piper or Bill Johnson or Joel Osteen or something and go, what's a deconstructing Christian? And they go, oh, that's just a Christian that never really believed in the first place. Or oh, right, that's just someone right. who just wanted to sin. And so what we're hoping to do and what we have done <laughs> in research is change the narrative. You know, I've had reporters contact me now. In fact, I just spoke two weeks ago to someone from the Gospel Coalition who's writing a book about deconstruction. And they contact me and says, could we talk? I want to sit down and I want to get the data about these people. I want to understand who it is we're writing about, who it is we're you know, attacking or whatever, so that I get it right. And I'm like, hey, hats off to you. At least be right in your critique. You know, like at least at least point the finger at the right people. And so, you know, being able to sit down with people and go, do you know that only this many people actually become atheists? Or did you know that this many people still attend a church after they deconstruct? Do you know that this many people do this? Or giving these these cold, hard data points that give life to a group of people that are generally misrepresented. And so I do a bit of everything. Um, wow. And yeah, I, I love what I do, but it's, it's a lot. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> well, and I come on to people's podcasts and get to meet great people. That's a, and that's, that, that is so cool. We're, we're glad that you did. It strikes me in, as interesting. Jeff Turner was the first guy that I heard say this out loud. And I, and I can't remember when he said it, but anyway, speaking of people who critique um, deconstruction in particular, he was making the, he, he observed that it's never people who've gone through it. It's never people who have any idea actually what the hell they're talking about. And they're just lobbing hand grenades at a, at a concept they, they thoroughly misunderstand. And then they go on to thoroughly misrepresent. And so, sure. you know, and that's, that, that's John Cooper in a nutshell. He's the, I mean, he's the, the knucklehead du jour. There's plenty of others out there. 
Um, it just strikes me as a little bit ironic that a guy who sings in a so-called Christian rock band who's covered in <laughs> tattoos, um, who is pushing against c- Christian conventions at every single turn, it seems like, suddenly turns his guns on people who are pushing against Christian convention, except that he has a new album coming out and he finds that he's less and less relevant as the days go by. So, And a book, right? He's writing a book about deconstruction or something? I knew he had a new album dropping. Um, that seemed okay. a little coincidental that he started on his little tirades. And it might just be that he's an asshole. You know, well, uh, it, it totally the could thing be. Is, it's not just that, though, as well. Like, here, here's the thing. It's also that he's scared. He's a, he's a conventional Christian who believes that the world is black and white. It's simple. There's right, there's wrong. There's in, there's out. Um, I'm right. Uh, you're wrong. I'm in, you're out. Um, if you're right, I'm wrong. And if you're in, well, I'm out. Um, and, and there needs to be these clear cut lines. I need to create these, uh, harsh divides. I need to, um, discredit someone deconstructed that looks like me. So someone like, um, I mentioned John Steingart. Um, he's a friend of mine. Um, and, he's a prime target for someone like John Cooper because they're the same guy, right? right? Some Christian celebrity band person. I don't listen to music, never mind Christian music. If I listen to music, the first place I'm starting is not Christian music, right? You right. know what I mean? I'm, I'm going to start with something good. Um, <laughs> no disrespect to John or John. I'm sure they both can play guitar and sing or whatever they do, right? Sure. But whatever. Um, but the point is they're basically the same person. And I think this is what's terrifying to someone like John Cooper or whoever. It doesn't matter who it is. Anyone. It could be your grandma. um, It could be your wife, your husband, whatever. What's terrifying is you are me. And actually, the line between you and me is really, really thin. And that terrifies me. And so I need to create a narrative that convinces me that you're not like me. Right. And, And really, that's what you're looking at. You're looking at very scared people that need to convince themselves that you were never really a Christian. Because if you were, then you could not be a Christian anymore. And that might happen to me. I don't know the future. Or you just wanted to go sin because I don't want to go sin, so I'm safe or whatever it is, right? I'm trying to find a better way to say that it just sounds so dumb, but it just sounds so dumb because, you know, Christians have always sinned as much as Christians want to sin. Uh, they sure. don't need an excuse. I mean, come on, man. So, so somebody running for cover and whether it be, I don't know if, if you sort of ran through the grace movement for a little while, like, like John and I both did hardcore. Mm-hmm. That was one of the big things that people threw at us all the time was, well, you, you only speak about grace to cover your sinful lifestyle. And I'm like, you have no effing clue what my lifestyle is, first of all. Right. Um, and then it was those people who seemed to scream and yell the loudest who were always, you know, somehow discovered some sort of tawdry affair, some sort of sexual abuse scandal, some sort of, you know, they're ripping the church off or all of the, all of the above. I'm like, I don't need to go find an excuse to sin. That seems to be kind of the human condition anyway. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it's just disingenuous at, at the very least. And, you know, one more little aside for John Cooper. You named your band Skillet. What the actual hell, dude? I mean, explain that. So otherwise, otherwise I'm just kidding. <laughs> so you sat around John, thinking about band names. Remember back in the day when we were going to be Christian rock stars? Did we yeah. ever think of, I don't know, what's something you cook in? Frying pan. That sounds great. Let's go frying pan. John Cooper, you are what happens when Nickelback gets saved. So let's move on. Anyway, um, but yeah. I, I, so on the other on the other side of the spectrum, though, Phil, do you notice this? So you have the you have the knuckleheads. You know, you have the people that were always 
you know what? I should probably stop calling them names. That's an ad hominem. I don't mean that. But you have your usual suspects. I don't, I don't get mm-hmm. shocked anymore when John Piper or John MacArthur or, you know, people of his ilk start to throw rocks at deconstruction. They'll throw rocks at anybody who's not them. I'm fine with that. But I have noticed that some of the more, for lack of a better word, unconventional voices that I have really, really glummed onto in my own deconstruction have now started to take their own little a couple little pot shots of deconstruction themselves. And I'm wondering if they're, if, if you see this happening where it feels like the more something because it becomes a buzzword, there will be always people who will then start to go, okay, well, now we have to push back against that because now it's, it's a little too popular or a little bit too mainstream. Um, have you noticed that? I mean, I'm, I have a couple names in mind, but I won't, I won't drag them out, but. Sure. I mean, I think that's human nature, right? I mean, it's, it's a tired trope from teenagers right through that, like, you, you like being the first person that likes something. You like being in the cool, right. cutting-edge idea. I like to... I mean, this is why conspiracy theories are big. You like to think that you know something that other people don't. You like to have value to the tribe, to the community, that you can tell people something they don't really know. All these kind of dynamics. And so it's natural for you to want to be on the cutting edge. Once deconstruction isn't on the cutting edge, you want to be on whatever's next, whatever right. it might be, right? Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's just natural human uh, nature. I think there's different components at place at play for different people, probably that are are kind of manifesting those behaviors. Um, but yeah, I, I've I've seen components of that for sure. Yeah. To me, I personally, the way I engage with the the concept of deconstruction is on an individual level. So on the one on one, I don't really even care if you call it deconstruction or not. I'm just here for someone that's going. I'm questioning my face and it's bloody terrifying. I have no idea what way it's up. Help. So on that level, I don't care what you call it. And if you need it to be destruction or anything, that's fine. You can call it whatever you want. And then I deal with it on the macro level. I zoom right out and I'm dealing with it from a data point. Looking at here, we've got a group, you know, a case study group of a thousand people that gives us a confidence level of 97% with, you know, 5% 5% uh, probability uh, or, 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 or 5% uh, chance of error among maybe a 2 million population. I can say pretty confidently that this is what someone that's going through deconstruction looks like generally. Um, you know, I'm dealing with those two extremes and everything in the middle, to be honest with you, kind of bores me. I just don't give a shit about all the little drama. And, you know, I I get bored with my own shit. Like, I get bored with my podcast because I'm like, yeah, who cares? Like, let's let's either help someone individually navigate their life and help reconnect them with their family or help them grow and become a better person and not feel terrifying existential dread or whatever. Or let's change the narrative around a whole group of people or a whole concept and help the whole world move forward in a healthy way. I don't really care that one person's got a feud with another person or someone's going, ah, did you use deconstruction wrong? Or as soon as you said that, I, I thought of somebody who, who, who gave me a hard time because listen, I know, I know what Jacques Derrida has to say about deconstruction. And I know that it doesn't have anything to do with what we're talking about. So I know that we've co-opted a term right, that doesn't mean what we think it means, except that it does. And he and he co-opted the term deconstruction to some degree. From well, yeah, from others, which was a word right? that meant to deconstruct. Right? It's like they came up with the first 
ever use of, I mean, obviously in French, yeah. uh, my French isn't that good, but he's not the first person to ever use the word. Right. Um, right. And also he would laugh at the concept of someone gatekeeping the word deconstruction. Well, like his, I think he would, absolutely. Being taken that concept <laughs> apart. Um, but yeah, uh, but I think that's important to understand as well that, you know, there are ways that people trip themselves up with deconstruction, right? So people hear deconstruction, they crack it into Google, they hit return, they click on Wikipedia, they have no idea what the hell is going on. Because let's be honest, right, right. Jack Derrida is well known as one of philosophy's hardest to access philosopher. Like his concept of deconstruction is one of the hardest concepts in modern philosophy to engage with, period. You can be a doctorate of philosophy and find Jack Derrida very hard to engage with hard, because he very. deconstructed his own arguments about deconstruction right. as he's writing them. Like yeah. it's, you know, it's just like a nightmare to read the guy. Um, and so <laughs> you are going to find yourself in all kinds of problems if you're going to just kind of go, oh, I'll just quickly see what deconstruction is. I'll type it into Google and see. You are going to find just, and so it can be very helpful to define for people and say, look, what this community largely is talking about is an identity that looks different to the philosophy of deconstruction. It's also, you might think of someone knocking down a house. It looks a little different to that as well. Both the philosophy of deconstruction and knocking down a house, probably some overlaps. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the only, the only guy I've ever heard make any sense of Derrida to me was Peter Rollins. And mm. Peter Rollins just has a way of, of, of distilling some of that really, really difficult stuff into some fairly, fairly easy to grasp concepts. And I was like, oh, okay, but I was already well into feeling like I had coined the term deconstruction because I was, I, I didn't know who Derrida was. I don't know who Jacques Aron. So I just right. thought if it, it, it's, a very, it's a very self-explanatory, what am I doing? Well, I'm taking this thing apart literally piece by piece, examining the parts of it and seeing what works and what doesn't work. And, and, you know, and maybe I'll reassemble it later. Maybe I won't. But in the meantime, I know that's bullshit. That's bullshit. That's got to go. That's got to go. You know, so it was, it was more akin to a, to a, I don't know, not even a planned, but a, you know, just a sort of semi-planned demolition than anything else, you know, just to see what survived the wreckage. And so, yeah, it, it, to me, um, people tip their hand or tip their hat, tip their hand. I guess that's a better expression. But it's, you know, when, when they start keying in on, well, you know, uh, and they start telling me what deconstruction really means. Like, I'm already uninterested in whatever else you have. Because you, like you said, you said it so well. You want to be the gatekeeper of how I even use that word. Um, you're exactly what I'm pushing back against, by the way. Because that's what religion has done to us my whole life is they've, they've set themselves up as the, as, you know, the gatekeepers, they get to define all the terms. They get to decide who's in and who's out. And so, yeah, it's a, it's, it's, so I only pick on John Cooper because he's the, he's the guy who's made a, a, the most amount of noise. He doesn't bother me at all. I just think it's funny. Oh, he is amazing. I love John Cooper. He, I could never, I do everything I do for free. So I can't afford Facebook advertising, Instagram yeah, advertising, so Cooper, Google right? advertising. But John Cooper, uh, Alyssa Childers, she's, oh, she wrote a blog God. recently and cited me uh, on the Gospel Coalition, said Phil Drysdale, researcher into the deconstruction, runs the deconstruction network. He, along with, and enlisted a whole bunch of our, uh, you know, my colleagues' accounts, other people in this movement. And I'm like, 
Oh, and everyone's getting upset. They're like, Mr. Shatters misrepresented deconstruction. I'm like, of course she did. That's what she, her job is. That's what her entire faith is surrounded by that. <laughs> ah, my God, she saved me. Like, what's the what's the traffic on the Gospel Coalition? How many conventional Christians click on that every day? Like, how many people are on her newsletter? A lot more than are on mine. Thank you. Like, amazing. And then, and then she's like, oh, I'm going to write a book about it, and I want to, like, cite your research. And I'm like, amazing, please. Yes, I'll publishing costs god like let's do it um like i i just am fascinated by the dynamics where people get upset about a conventional christian thinking convention yeah yeah it's honestly like getting like really upset about the the head of the clan making a racist statement and you're like okay would like to correct that, would like to change that, would like to call him to accountability and, and you know, maybe create some repercussions for that. But at the end of the day, I'm at least not surprised. Like, right. surprise <laughs> is the last thing you should be feeling here. Like, let's get a grip here, guys. Like, and so I think the whole outrage over people misrepresenting deconstruction or something, I'm like, come on, what do you expect? You've got your grandma. At what point did she represent deconstruction well? Why do you think any different of anyone else that believes the same things? Like, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's a bizarre thing. And it honestly is great. Like, joking aside about advertising, there's three people that listen to someone like that, right? There's us, who just get really pissed off and annoyed, and we think this person is an idiot and doesn't know what they're talking about, and we, we, we move on. We might get a little upset and wound up too long, but eventually we just shut the browser and move on and listen to our favorite podcasts and go, oh, that's amazing, that's much better, that's what I believe, right? Because we all like our little bubble. Um, there's their people who listen to it and go, yeah, that's exactly what my grandson did, the little twerp and parasite <laughs> in the right group, right? Um, he did just want to sin. He just, after all that street creds, stupid kids, right? That's, that's that person. And I've talked to those people. I'm not changing their mind anytime soon. So let them listen to the Read the Gospel Coalition article. But the third person is the person that you and I will really struggle to find. Because they're the person that's sitting in a church every week and they feel trapped, they feel scared, they feel terrified that they're going to lose their faith, they feel terrified they're going to lose their community, their friends, their family. Maybe they've already lost, lost their faith and they have no idea what the hell's going on to, with them. They don't know what to do in life. They don't know how to move forward. And their pastor or someone sends them an article or their sister shares a thing on Facebook and it's all about the deconstruction movement, how dangerous it is. These people ask questions about God and they're not sure there really is a God. And all they're thinking is like, hell yeah, I need to check this shit out. Like, <laughs> that's honestly the three groups of people that are listening and only one of them is going to change their minds or be helped by it. And there are people. They're being sent straight to us by someone like that. And so I think honestly... I have no time for getting worked up and upset about people misrepresenting deconstruction. I'm going to do my job of trying to help represent it well, trying to get great data, trying to help people see themselves in the data, help individuals. And like, man, what? We're going to wage war with like John Cooper? Like, that's just what he wants, right? <laughs> right. I mean, let him wage war fighting on his own, boxing his shadow. And I mean, no one's listening, right? I, I, I mean, is anyone listening? And- you know, those who are listening were already listening. Right. So who cares? I mean, the net gain for him is is very, very little, I think. So yeah, I think you're right about that. I think the only people he has helped is people like you. <laughs> so that's great. And if it drove more traffic to your website, man, it, oh, more power to you. And keep it up, John. Actually, thank you for uh, for all of your help in uh, helping us with our advertising. It, it reminds me of when Martin Scorsese uh, made the film The Last Temptation of Christ. 
which was, in my estimation, a mediocre film at best. Wasn't that Scorsese? John's mm-hmm. looking at me yeah, like I'm high on crack. No, I, think, I, no I think you're right. It was okay. Scorsese. Anyway, yeah, I think it was Scorsese. But anyway, it was, you know, it was, you know, it's Scorsese. Anytime he makes a film, it's a big deal. It wasn't that good. But Christians lost their goddamn minds. They went apeshit. They lost it. They picketed. They went to the theaters and demanded it be pulled from the projectors. And they, you know, they had, you know, sit-ins and all kinds of crazy. That Scorsese must have just loved every bit of that. Oh, yeah. Because it wasn't going to do that well. It was an art film. You know, it was going to have a small little tiny audience and Christians blew it up. And again, I went and saw it partly because of all the hubbub. I'm like, well, I got to see what this is about. And I walked away going, eh. Not his best work, whatever. I would have probably never even watched it. Have you revisited it since you deconstructed? I, I need to. I have not. Um, it actually probably I is a much better I feel like there might be more depth now that I'm not a Christian. Actually, <laughs> a Christian going, yeah, I see it. Uh, you know what? Hey, I mean, that's a, that reminds me of a question. I know I, know, I feel like I've boxed out of this conversation, but it's mostly because he's watching the room spin still. So um, <laughs> I'm not drunk, people. That's not what it's about. Are there things that you're noticing? Because I lived in such a sort of hermetically sealed Christian bubble for so long. I'm going back and going, man, I missed out on so much of this stuff, you know, um, politically even, cause I, you know, I'm mm-hmm. not really a politics guy, but I was at the time I was very, you know, I was very much partisan hack. And so i you know, Obama was the devil and, you know, yada, yada. And now I go back and I'm, I, I miss you, Obama. I miss you very much. But, um, but there were things in my life that, you know, that, that just weren't even, and then I guess that movie, um, sort of struck a chord, you know, just bringing that up. But did you, did you find that to be true for yourself? You kind of, kind of missed out on some stuff because you were so busy chasing that other thing, you know? Sure. I mean, but that's, that's life as well. You know, I think this is, I, I, I help people deal with this a daily, right? I mean, it's a huge, huge component of um, part of deconstruction costs you so much. It's so much you end up grieving, right? You grieve um, a loss of your own identity. Who am I? Becomes questions. Who, what are my relationships? You start questioning. Even maybe your marriage. You married someone because they were, you know, walking with you, partnered with Jesus. And now you're like, I don't even know what I mean. Think about that. Or, right. you know, my choice to have kids, my choice to get this job, my choice to not get a job and become a missionary or become a pastor or whatever it might be. Um, there's so many things. I lose my friends, my family, my community. So you're grieving all these things. And, and I think part of uh, the grieving process very naturally is coming to terms with the fact, oh, I didn't get to have a normal teenage upbringing. Oh, I didn't get to have um, a normal approach to dating. You know, I didn't get to like date a few people and figure out who am I? What do I like? Who do I like? What am I looking for in a healthy, balanced relationship? I got married at 17 or something, you know, like whatever it is, you know, like, or whatever. Any age in the church is generally way too young to get married, probably. Um, You know, like, but you go, I, I, I wish it was different. I wish I didn't give all those years to becoming a missionary. I wish I'd followed my plan to become a software engineer. That would have been way more interesting and fulfilling for me or whatever it might be. Um, I think regret and and that grieving process is really natural. And, and you have to listen to that in your body. You have to engage with that. You have to let it teach you. You have to let it talk to you. And, and maybe it's showing you something you want to revisit. Maybe it's showing stuff that you need to process that you never really got to process. Um, but at the end of the day, you can't, do anything different than you've already done. Um, and so for me, I always try and encourage people to lean into what they have done, lean into what they have 
from those years, what they can take away from that that's positive. Um, often the, mo- the only positive thing you can do is, well, that's bullshit and I want to change that sort of stuff. Great, that's a positive. You've learned something, right? Hopefully you have a lot more positives as well. I think most people, when they're genuinely able to detach a little bit or, or, or not detach, healthily work through a lot of their upset, their rage, their guilt, their um, their regrets, all the different uh, emotions, once they can process that and have a bit of space to healthily look back over their life, there's actually a lot of stuff in our time in the church, in Christianity, um, even in fundamental forms of Christianity, that we can actually integrate quite healthily into our life. There's a lot of things we learned in that time that was probably quite helpful. You know, I know um, a lot of men have uh, much, this is kind of an ironic and fun statistic I like to share, a lot of men in the church are much less masculine. So there's a well-known statistic that has been shown in dozens of studies that men who, who are in churches are much less masculine than men who aren't in churches. Um, and it's because, generally speaking, in churches, they encourage you to spend time processing your emotions, processing your day, talking to God, journaling, praying. And that's all inner work. It connects you with your emotions and these things that um, have historically, from a gender perspective, been seen as more feminine. Um, and so there's certain things in there that I'm like, oh yeah, actually being in the church helps me be um, more connected to my emotions, which by the way, as an autistic person, is really helpful. Um, being in the church helped me connect with other people. Again, autistic person, if it wasn't for church, I wouldn't be around anyone ever. Right. I would never have built many social skills because I didn't want to be around people. I wanted to be very isolated. And um, that's not true of all autistic people, but like, you know, that was true for me. Um, it forced me into having more relationships than I wanted and to learn more social skills. Um, and so I can look back and go, yeah, I regret a lot of things, but I can't change any of those things. None of those. At most, I can look at that regret and go, okay, how's that going to fuel me moving forward? I wish I'd spent more time learning this about myself. Okay. Great. I'm going to sign up for a course or I'm going to go you know, date someone else or whatever it might be, right? Um, but I think there can be a lot of helpful introspection and, and learning from that time period as well. We can learn from that regret, but we can also look back and go, let's not throw away the baby with the bathwater. What, what did I grow from in that time? And how do I make sure I can move that with me? When I move forward, I, I bring that with me. Um, sorry, it's a ramble, and I'm not sure I even answered your question. But <laughs> no, no, I, no, I think you did very well. Absolutely. <laughs> I... Or either that or you rambled in a way that I could follow. So um, I am fairly adept at rambling myself. So I, I just, I have, you know, a lot of things like that come up a lot with when it comes to my version of deconstruction, right? And I'm not sure how much the listeners want to hear that story again. But, you know, because mine happened so long ago when there was no, there was no term for deconstruction. But what I find interesting, what you're saying is like, you know, learning from and taking what you had, what you, what you did learn in church. So, you know, I, I, I left the church when I was pretty young, like 19. And I was able to take some of that and kind of use that in my real world experience. Not all of it, because there was a lot of church trauma there. And and unfortunately, that did come along with me. And then I'm still dealing with that baggage, right? But fast forward 25 years, 27 years, when I decided to step back into a church, I maybe naively thought that I could then use my world experience and maybe change the way church happens. And sadly, that didn't work either. And I, it's so what, I guess the, either the, just the comment or the question on this is, I mean, is there, is there a way? Cause it didn't work for me. I'm just going to be perfectly honest. I am not in a church at the moment. I am, uh, unchurched. Um, but do you see a way or do you see how people can take this deconstruction and then enter back into 
a church and, and, and help that church accept people who are deconstructing. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the data is still emerging. I mean, this is a move at, at least around the identity of people that identify I am a deconstructing Christian, whatever that might mean to them is, is probably a bit of a gray area. Um, and we allow people to identify themselves and then we build the data around who they are. And, 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 you know, that's how we choose to, there's different models of how you build data around uh, identities, but that's probably the easiest way with someone like uh, part of this movement. What we can see is that generally speaking, about 25%, give or take, that identifies a deconstructing Christian is one that has come from a conventional faith within Christianity. 25% still attends church up to once a week. That's a very high number. Like, that should shock most people, right? I, when I like, when I think of someone like John Cooper reading that stat, I can I can feel them going, "Damn it!" Right? Because it's too. That's a good <laughs> stat for them, right? That's great. That yeah. means this is yeah. not necessarily meaning people aren't into church or they aren't Christian. And as many as thirty percent, on average, um, you can bounce between about twenty-five to thirty percent. Depends on country. Countries mess with the data as well and different things like that. But I'm focusing mostly on American because this is mostly an American phenomenon on the whole, um, at least as far as identification. Um, as much as 30% still identify as Christian. Now, again, uh, I know a lot of the, the John Coopers, Alyssa Childers, those kind of people, that's actually who they're pointing their finger at most, is the p- person that says, I am a Christian. Because they go, well, no, you're not. You're a you're progressive Christian, and that means you're fucking Satan or whatever. I don't know. Like, you're just angry, right? Because um, you can't be a different type of Christian. In fact, a different type of Christian is scary. An atheist is kind of like, oh, who cares? We've lost them and they're, they're, they're irrelevant. They're, no one's getting led astray by Christopher Hitchens. They're getting led astray by Brian McLaren or Rob Bell, right? These are the danger people, right? right. Yeah, um, they see them as gateway drugs or dangerous. Um, <laughs> and so what's fascinating to me is there is a way... Um, now... So the point is, your Christian self 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, might not have accepted that you still think you're a Christian today. Right, <laughs> right? for sure. They're Absolutely. like, nope, you're the yep. devil. You definitely yeah. aren't a Christian, right? But the truth yeah. is that you identify today, this is you know as much as 30% of people that deconstruct, you still identify in some way with the, the, the label Christianity. Now, what's fascinating to me is I talk to people daily and I talk to hundreds of people a month that go, uh, I'm not sure what I am, but I'm definitely not a Christian because I hate that label. What's fascinating to me is they don't even disassociate with the concept or the tradition or the t- theology. They disassociate with the label. So to me, I think that number might even be higher than 30% as far as people that really are following the path of Jesus or something like that. And we're going to dive into that a bit more in our ongoing data over the years. So hopefully we can get some more fleshed out thoughts on that. But the point is, it's doable. People are still attending church once a week. People are still identifying as Christian. Now, when you look at that data a bit closer, you find the majority of them are in mainline or progressive churches. Mainline and progressive kind of overlap a lot of the time. Some go to kind of um, through more kind of orthodox movements, so orthodox Christianity, like Greek Orthodox or something like that. These are more common. You're you're not going to find most of the people that identify as going to church once a week aren't going to evangelical Christian churches. They aren't going to uh, a Pentecostal church, right? Now, some are, but generally speaking, it's very rare. Um, and so what you find when people deconstruct is that they generally move away from conventional forms of Christian churches. A lot attends things like home churches. So here's the thing, right? If you had started your own church, 
and brought some buddies around and, you know, seen what happened and grew it, maybe you could have had a church that was really informed by your last 27 years of experience. Yeah. And absolutely. it would look very different. But you go along to Pastor Greg Locke's church where they're burning, you know, <laughs> Harry Potter or whatever. You're not going along there and bringing any experience, right? Even if you are holding the Bible and reading scriptures, he's going to tell you to shut up because it's <laughs> exactly. his way, right? I mean, yeah. so like, what hope do you have going, hey, well, actually, I've got a, a university degree in international relationships. Maybe I could, international relations and, you know, uh, and I have a degree in working in nonprofits. Maybe I could help with the missions project, right? You know, like, duh, yeah, get this guy in charge, right? But no, we've actually got, you know, Bob, and he's been praying about missions for 10 years, and he knows what to do, and it works his way, right? Um, hey. So whatever, you know, the point is, there's different sort of spaces that are going to be receptive, and different right. spaces yeah. that are going to be very unreceptive. And I think that's the hard part. How do you find a church that's more receptive? How do you find a church that's open to people that have questions? How do you find a church that um, allows people that identify differently or even identify Christianity differently? That's a, that's a big question. You know, most churches, you click on that statement of faith, you don't even have to click on it. You could probably list the top 10 things straight away, right? You know, it's like, I believe in God, the three parts, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I believe the Bible is an inerrant and, you know, bum, 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 bum. It's the same thing on every website. They copy and paste of the whatever, Evangelical Alliance or whatever. It's not even creedal particularly. Some of it is and some of it's not. But those kind of churches, no, you're not going to... If the church has a statement of faith, you're almost certainly going to have problems, right? What you want is you want to click on a church and go, statement of faith, and you click, and they go, look, generally speaking, we agree that Jesus is God or divine or showing us the way, um, and we're figuring it out around that. And I'm like, yeah. whoa, that's a church that might work, right? These are very different spaces, and you'll see that kind of statement of faith on a church that's very progressive, maybe holds space for LGBTQ, um, you know, who's talking... To, prominently about issues of race and Christianity and trying to make reparations for the problems in Christianity through the history. These kind of hot topics that shouldn't be hot topics. These should be like, we deal, dealt with this many, many years ago topics. Yeah. Um, these are the kind of churches you go, oh, they're going to be open to like having some serious discussion and questions about how we do this. Um, and that's what you're looking for, I think. And, and some people find them easily. You know, it depends where you are. If you're in a city, it might be easier than if you're in a tiny village, uh, you know, town in Iowa or something. It's going to be much harder to find it than yeah. if you're in Queens, New York or whatever. Yeah. Southern California, you're in a pretty good place, you know? No, I'm, I'm northern. <laughs> northern California. Yeah, yeah oh, then, God, northern. I've, I spent four years in northern California. Rest in peace. I was, I was, I was born and raised there. <laughs> I know exactly what John's going through, but... um. What's interesting to me is that those those people that we named that I don't want to keep giving them anymore. Any, I don't want to drive any more traffic to Skillet's webpage. But those people would look at your data, I bet you, and say, "Well, if they've left the evangelical church and they claim they still go to church, but they're going to an LGBTQ affirming church or a progressive church, but they're not really going to church." So your number's closer to zero, buddy. Um, yeah. These people aren't going. They're not real Christians anymore. But what, what, what I think is really interesting is there are thousands upon thousands of people leaving the church every day and it's got nothing to do with deconstruction. And they're focused on a small percentage of people who are actually actively examining their faith and picking on them yeah. versus creating a space that makes regular people just want to stay. Most people are just leaving and it's got nothing to do with there's doctrinal issues or there's, they're just, they just see the, the hypocrisy and the bullshit 
that's in their church and they just, they just have given up on the project in some respect. So it seems to me like a, you know, like they focus their attention on, on a little tiny, little perceived problem and they're ignoring the huge gaping wound mm-hmm. in the church itself, which is self-inflicted largely, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what's fascinating about the church is, um, like you said, there's this mass exodus. You know, some of our data on this is really old still, but we just dropped, um, I think in 2018, we dropped for the first time in America below 50% regular church attendance. Um, and so that to me is the standing. Coming from Europe, I'm still like, wow. Like uh, the same study, the, um, the global uh, social study, um, survey, they just found this year, for the first time ever in American history, less than half of the American population say, I know there is a God and have zero doubts. That was 49.7% of the population say they know and have zero doubts that there is a God. To me, I'm like, Jesus, I don't know that I'm Phil and I'm sitting in the room. <laughs> I mean, I could still be on some epic mushroom trip from like a decade ago. I don't know. Like, I might be in a psych ward dreaming this. How the hell do you know and have zero deaths as a God, right? So these are the people that, you know, we're talking about a lot of times. Like, they are very, very fundamental and see the world very black and white. So, of course, they're going to immediately write off anyone that calls themselves a Christian or anything like that. And, but, of course, they're going to focus on that group because that's the group that they can point to and say, these are wrong, these are evil, these are whatever. The, the people that leave going, hey, I actually left just because um, I'm a black family. We're a black family and you have no representation in leadership. And when Black Lives Matter came on, you did a sermon on Blue Lives Matter. And honestly, what the fuck? Like, right. I've got a problem with that and we're out. Like, that's an easier problem to deal with. And actually, it's a much harder problem to deal with. For yeah. Right? And so, or, hey, like one of the largest exoduses from the church in history occurred at the time when the whole of the evangelical church went absolutely insane and started going, our guy that looks most like Jesus is this guy who's bragging about raping and assaulting young women. Like, yes, that's yes. the one we think looks like Jesus, right? Like, whatever you think about the other candidate, right? I mean, I, I think in America, you're looking at, like, the worst options ever because you just pick two geriatric, like, evil warlords that are in the pocket of businesses, and that's your option. So, I mean, I get it. Like, it's a hard choice. Yeah, and I even get why show. some people are like, fuck it, let's vote for someone insane. Like, I get that <laughs> as well, honestly, if I'm yeah. honest with you. Because, like, yeah. why not? Let's see what next reality show America does. Um, and it was one hell of a show. Um, but it was a show that cost lives. It was a show that whatever. But the point being that the church was like, yes, this guy, we can clearly draw a line between our idea of God and Jesus and this guy and get everyone to get on board. And they did. And it's probably not a coincidence that my inbox was full for four years. And most people that were saying, I just cannot come to terms with this. Most of the people that were saying stuff like that weren't questioning their faith. They were questioning church. They were questioning the institution. They were questioning how everyone that was representing Jesus to them and was supposed to be a wise, wizened counselor and person that would lead them in how to understand the Bible and help them connect to God were going, look at this guy. He brags about assaulting women. He brags about cheating and lying and he's racist and homophobic or whatever. Like, that's our guy. And they're sitting going, uh, that's not my guy. Maybe I'm not someone that belongs here. Uh, you know, these are really easy issues to deal with on some level, right? Don't be a church that sides with pretty awful, evil 
things. Um, so I'm, I'm not being to speak, I'm very political, but these are these are big yeah, topics that were big topics yeah. the last few years that weren't theological. Now, in some ways, they're deeply theological. Everything's theological, right? If you're a Christian, everything is. How you vote is theological. They'll pull out a Bible verse everywhere and pull it in and go, oh, this is why we're voting this way, and this is why you should do this and that. But on another level, some things are just because you are a white nationalist or just because you are a very rich, privileged person, right? I mean, I, when I first moved to America, I was fascinated, went along to a church, and I, I moved right in the election year 2008 and then was stayed until 2012. So I was there for both the Obama uh, elections. And it astounded me that this guy who was like, hi, I'm a Christian, I go to church every week, I love Jesus, yeah, I'd like to be president. I'm relatively sane. I'm well communicative. I'm not geriatric. I don't like shit and piss myself when I like laugh or, you know, just like out of the chair. Um, like, I, you know, hey, I also think Obama, terrible warlords, you know, was in the pocket businesses and so on. So, so I'm not saying like, hey, this guy's perfect. But I'm looking at this going, you've got the option between this and a Mormon, right? Fuck all other things. If you're a evangelical Christian, conventional Christian, you've been calling Mormonism a cult for decades because you're terrified of something that looks like close, right? Right? And so they're like, nope, this guy's the devil. And then you've got like Billy Graham, first time in his entire life going, you know, uh, I've always been bipartisan, but this time I'm going to go, this Mormon's a Christian. You should vote for him. Yikes, like, yeah. what just happens, right? My pastor's going, you know, you just got to go with the godly character man, the man who's a Mormon. And I'm like, what's happening right now? Did I wake up in a reality show? Um, and so it was very foreign for me as, a, as someone in the UK. We don't let our Christianity particularly affect our voting. We're very political in lots of other ways, but there was not that kind of overlap. Um, it's not a very Christian nation. Um, and so seeing these components, you start to realize, I started to question the church, the organizations I was, I was being a part of, that I was part of a ministry school, I was part of different things going on. And I'm like, what's going on here? It feels like on some level, they just don't like this guy because he's slightly more liberal. And actually on a really scary level, I'm looking around and in a church of about 3,000 people, I've seen two black people. And maybe actually they just don't like this guy because he's black? Am I in a racist church? Like, that's a scary wake up moment. Like where it's like, wait, am I sitting with the racist? Am I racist? Huh. Like these are scary moments that come. And that's the sort of stuff that the church is doing to people. It's not just causing them to go, eh, I don't know about purity culture. Eh, I'm not sure people are going to go to hell. You know, these big, big theological um, topics. I'm sure big purity culture should be. Um it's it's the it's it's the day to day stuff that people are just the church is failing monumentally. Like, is it? Are we really? I I just spoke to the person sitting next to me in church, and they're a single mom, and they asked me to pray for them, and they're struggling to pay their bills, and they're about to get kicked out of their apartment. And the pastor just shared a testimony about how someone gave him a second Tesla. Yeah. Like, what are we doing right now? Right or uh, whatever? Right? Are we just are holding a secret? third offering for the associate pastor so he can go on holiday or, you know, and it's just like, oh, that's nice, I guess. Yeah. But like, what's, what's going on here? These are weird dynamics. And so I think it's really common that there's a lot going on here that isn't just what we focus on and look at. And I think when you look at the statistics, so you, you mentioned thousands of people, the old statistics, this is up to date to 2014, 
I cannot imagine how much higher these statistics are. But between 2007 and 2014, 1 million people in America left the church every year. Works out around 2,700 people a day. Um, that's every day. And that's people that left the church with the intent to never return. That's, that's a pretty significant statement to make as well. Now, what's interesting about that, if you look at the people that are leaving the church every day and you poll them and say, do you still hold some form of spirituality? About 78, 79% say yes. That's a very high percentage. Now, what that looks like, maybe it's like, ah, I saw a ghost once. Maybe there's ghosts, right? I mean, I, I don't know what do you have some spirituality means. But generally speaking, when you look at people at de-church, um, there's a great study by Hope and Packard, two very um, conventional evangelical researchers. Um, and so they are researchers first and evangelical Christians second, in a sense. And they have a whole section in their, in their study, like going, we are researchers, we trust the data, we are science-driven, here's our study. And they, they go into it very honestly. We looked at people all throughout America who were leaving the church, we grabbed a thousand people, did a thousand interviews, and we looked really in depth. And our hypothesis was these people were hurt, and they just were done with church. They were bored. They wanted to leave. There was, there was something like these kind of hypotheses. They maybe just wanted to sin. None of their hypotheses occurred. In fact, of the thousand people they interviewed, not one was hurt by church and left. Almost all of them at some point have been hurt by church. But what they found is with control groups, when you ask regular Christians that are still in church, have you ever been hurt by church? Every single one of them said yes as well. So, being hurt by church was irrelevant, it turned out. And actually, on average, when people said, when was the first time you were significantly hurt by church, it took people seven years from that moment, on average, to leave church. So people tried hard to stay in church. People bounced between, on average, people went through four churches before they left church. People really tried to make church work. They stayed, they tried to change it from the inside, they went to other churches. They really believe in the church. They really believe in Christianity. And there's something about the way that church is operating right now that people can go through four churches and go, fuck, I guess it's not going to happen. I need to pick something else. I, I, I'm out. I have to do Christianity on my own in the wilderness or I have to start my own church or whatever it is. Um, but a lot of these people weren't asking theological questions. They were asking societal questions. They were asking institutional questions. So yeah, I mean, there's a lot going on there um, for sure. Yeah, and there's a lot of, I mean, that, that resonates with me because that's my experience exactly. Heard by the church routinely, you know, and, but the last significant thing I went through with church, it was about seven or eight years before I was mm. like, you know what, now I'm done. And I planted my own church because... Mm. I just couldn't do it anymore, you know? And I, so it was either that or not, or I was done with church entirely. And so I, not being one to give up that easily, I'm like, I'll give it one more shot um, with me doing the things that I, you know, and see if I can't screw it up, you know, which I <laughs> most assuredly will. But let me ask you this. Do you have any data? This was sort of question rolling around in my head. For those who, who are deconstructing, um, and maybe this will be data that will take some time to emerge, but um, any data on what it is principally that's driving them? Are there theological or doctrinal issues that are, you know, maybe you see cited more often as like, okay, listen, the issue of heaven and hell was really what pushed me over the edge or or was the first domino to fall or maybe something else. I don't know, just curious. Sure, theologically, I mean, we don't have cold hard data on this yet. This is part of um, ongoing studies that we're, we're working on. Um, but anecdotally, I mean, I've talked to, 
tens of thousands of people over the last 10 years. I mean, I, I talk to hundreds of people a week. So I mean, I talk to a lot of people about their journeys. And so I can tell you anecdotally what I hear coming up again and again and again. Um, and so sociologically, I talk about things like, you know, um, uh, LGBTQ rights, um, you know, how race is dealt with in the church, politics in, invading the church, nationalism, those kind of things come up a lot. Now, as I said, those are also theological issues. You can't talk about, um, my son has come out as gay. What do I do? And how do I, you know, navigate that without getting theological if you're a Christian, right? Um, and you might have a problem with how the church reacted, but at core, you probably have a church problem with how the church's theology is, if that causes you to leave. And so there's a big blend there, but outside of, um, sort of, um, sociological kind of, uh, impact, the big things, generally speaking, uh, certainly LGBTQ is a huge, huge issue. I think people are more and more being surrounded by people that have a different um, identification, uh, gender, sexuality, and they're starting to go, uh, these people are evil, like, just normal, and I kind of feel like this is a problem, like that we're dealing with it this way. So that's a big one. But I think hell is a massive one, massive, massive problem. Like It just doesn't add up for a huge amount of people. It just doesn't make sense to people that God is love. God will torture and, you know, endlessly torture people for infinite time because they didn't pray a certain way at one time. Um, other points, even the nature of God, people really struggle with the nature of God. What's the, you know, theodicy, what's the problem, problem of evil? Why, why is there evil in the world if God's good? Why do we, hell, never mind that, open up the Bible. Why is it that God goes, hey, you can perform genocide in this town. In fact, perform infanticide, kill all the kids as well. Oh, but keep the young teenage girls, you can hand them around to the soldiers as right. a reward. Wait, what? So you have to kill babies because they're inherently evil, but you can keep the young teenage girls alive to sure. rape because that's okay. Like when you start reading your Bible and seeing these things and well, God's ways are higher than our ways doesn't tick the box anymore. That's a big problem. It's a really big problem. And so there, there's, there's these big topics. And, and I think is what's interesting. Let me say this because this is really, really key to deconstruction. Most people focus on what beliefs change through deconstruction. But actually, what beliefs change is kind of not the point. It's kind of a side effect of what's actually changed. What's changed is not what we believe. What's changed is how we believe. And what's interesting is people that deconstruct have always asked these questions. You go into a church and ask, Hey, everyone, has anyone ever asked, what's the deal with the genocide in the Bible? Yeah, everyone, anyone ever feel uncomfortable with that? Every hand's going to go up, almost everyone, because they go, yeah, I, I struggle with that sometimes. That's an honest answer. Now, if you then said, how many of you have kind of come to peace with it and you figured out an answer, God's ways and not our ways, maybe the people were demonic and they had to be wiped out, like the flood or, you know, like... Most hands are going to go up and go, yeah, I've kind of come to terms. The pastor's answer made me feel better, or I read a, uh, I don't know, ask whatever the websites are, ask Genesis or got answers or whatever the weird Christian websites are. I think they have answers for every single question. You know, I read that and I feel fine and uncomfortable. What's interesting is the question asked doesn't change. What changes is the psychological way of thinking internally changes. I used to also think it was okay, some of those answers. I, I had different answers for different questions, but I was kind of okay. I was at peace with some of these big issues. And I was like, 
yeah, that's the way it is. That's what God made it like. That's the, that's the way God designed it. And then suddenly I wasn't. And actually, I couldn't point to this specific thing that happened in my head that changed the fact that that answer is no longer an acceptable answer for me. Um, and so what's really, and this is what's really terrifying to most people that aren't deconstructing, is that really they are one day of personal psychological growth away from completely deconstructing because the way they see the world has grown up and changed and adapted. And the way that they used to rationalize things is no longer the way they rationalize things. This is the problem when you argue with your, you know, your mom about like your faith and she's like, well, you're just not making, you don't make any sense anymore, Phil. You know, you're not close. Like the Bible says, and I'm like, oh my God, what is this moron using the Bible for as a rational argument? That's not a rational argument at all. Like let's use science and ration and logic and, you know, morality. And, um, and they're going, wow, what on earth is this idiot talking about science? We're talking about the Bible and God's, right? These are two very rational people who have a different point of ration to work around, right? We have a very different way of framing the worlds and seeing the worlds. And when that changes, that theological issue that was never an issue becomes a huge issue. And that's really what's happening for these people. And it can be a really small thing or it can be a huge thing. Um, and so I've seen people deconstruct with some of the weirdest small things. They usually come back after a few weeks and they've got much bigger questions because the ball started to roll. Um, but the psychological change internally is usually what's happened, not the the actual question. You know, if, if the pastor just avoids people asking the wrong question, that's not the point. People can probably ask the wrong question. He's fine. He can just give his answer and people will accept it. I have seen that, I mean, anecdotally, again, from, you know, it, it tends to be a cumulative effect, doesn't it? I mean, for most people, I think that's, I think that holds true that there's, there's a, there's a trickle of discontentment that comes and eventually tips the whole thing over, you know, and it might not be the one thing that kicks it over finally might not be that big a deal, but you know, it's the proverbial, you know, straw. It feels like a landmine. Yeah. Just feel, and it feels calamitous, you know, and it feels a lot of times. And I liked how you, you spoke about grieving over this process because, um, there is a lot of that that goes on with folks, you know, who are going through a, a grieving process of losing some sense of, I grieved the loss of certainty, you know, mm-hmm. until I realized I, I never had it anyway. And now I don't want it, you know, but you still, mm. you grieve that thing that you feel like you need to have that's sort of your last tether to something concrete. And all of a sudden you're just sort of adrift. And then you find out, you know, you, you read the contemplatives and you go, no, no, that's actually what you're shooting for. <laughs> it's like, you know, the, the goal is not to be anchored and tethered to something is to be free to move around and, and explore the depth of God. And yeah, so I, I, I wonder if you, if you've noticed too, that people who have, gone through this process of deconstruction. And like, like how you said, it's not that they're changed, their beliefs have necessarily changed, but how they believe, do you find that their beliefs or even the way they hold to them is now a little bit more loosely? Like, okay, yeah. these are the things that I believe in. Um, I've got one or two things I could tell you right now that I'm holding on to pretty hardcore and everything else is pretty much up for grabs. Um, and sure. I would not have said that 10 years ago. But do you yeah. find that there's a little bit more malleability, you know, like, hey, listen, there's, there's some flexibility here to see, which allows us then to make space for things that um, even though we, you know, might not be super comfortable with, we're getting there. Does that make sense? I mean, as a, as a middle-aged white cisgender dude, you know, <laughs> I am, I am, I'm along a trajectory of like, listen, I have too many people in my life who are in that community for me to think that they're 
bad or sinful or going to hell. I, I, I have to. You know. So my personal experience won't allow that to be the case. Anyway, mm-hmm. I just was curious what, what you think about that. Yeah. Well, this goes right back to your first question about um, deconstruction. Uh, and we're talking about the term deconstruction, how we identify and, 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 and describe it and define it. Um, so from our studies, talking to people that identify as deconstruction, we, we basically tore apart the data and reinterpreted like, who are they? What What is it that makes them a deconstructing Christian? Um, and we looked at that compared to control groups of people that are conventional Christians. And we found three markers. And so this is an interesting thing to probably your audience will be mildly interested in anyway, but the third marker is really key here. The first marker was that they asked questions of their core values of their faith, their faith tradition. And so core values are core values, right? It's not right. like... Um, uh, Look at Bob over there. He's a he's a post-tripper, crazy Bob. We all know that. It's really mid-trip, but Bob can sit in church. He'll be fine. We maybe don't let him teach on the rapture, but fine, whatever. <laughs> you don't tend to chill out at the, um, you know, in John Piper's church, and they don't tend to go, ah, look at Julie. She denies the divinity of Christ. Classic, Julie. <laughs> Julie, are you coming to the potluck? No, right? I mean, Julie's dead. Like, you know, yeah, Julie's wrapped up in a carpet and ditched in the dark, you know, uh, metaphorically, of course. Um, but, <laughs> I think John Piper's capable of anything, but who knows? <laughs> yeah, really. I'm um, kidding. I'm kidding, John. It's okay. <laughs> um, uh, I got a love, a lot of love for John in a lot of ways. Um, what a, what a funny guy. Um, so Julie's asking some core value questions, right? Right, right? Bob or whatever name I use, Jeff, or I don't know. He's not. He's, he's, and we talk about these in church. We talk about like core values, creedal right. topics, you know, versus like statement of faith, right? If it's on the church statement of faith, you can't really fuck with that. But, you know, if it's, if it's not in the creeds and it's kind of a periphery thing and, you know, yeah, it's fine. Ah, oh, you think it's okay to get tattoos? Eh, I feel uncomfortable with that, but I'm eating my bacon. So, okay, cool. You know, whatever, right? Um, but you're probably not going to be like, I think it's okay to murder people or whatever, unless it's, you know, the death penalty or, you know, whatever right. else. Or, yeah. whatever. Um, or gay people or, oh, yeah. wait a minute, they're fine with or, murder. Never mind. Or people with any other nationality. <laughs> right. Group isn't white predominantly. Yeah. Um, right. But anyway, sorry. first point. Second point is that you find your faith tradition no longer satisfies that question and you're now seeking new answers to those core values, new core values to, to, to gather around and to hold on to. And so this is why I hate the idea that deconstruction is entirely de- destructive. A lot of people say deconstruction, whatever reconstruction is de- destructive. It's not true. People that deconstruct are constantly changing what they believe and building new things to frame themselves around. Now, they might not last more than 10 minutes, but they're holding on to something while they're flying around in the water, grasping for uh, something to hold on to. They're holding on to different things as they go. And honestly, even saying, I don't believe in God is a belief, right? Yeah. We don't believe in God. That's a belief. And so people that are deconstructed and have these um, these changes in their core values and what they believe. But the third part was really interesting, and it's not surprising if you um, have ever studied things like psychological development uh, theory and things like that. But the third part was that we found that people that deconstruct, and this is a massive change, because a lot of conventional Christians, um, you talked about the grace movement, great concept, actually. A lot of people would identify that as um, a deconstruction in a sense, but it's not based on our... Um, academic definition. Now, if people want to identify as deconstructing, I don't really care. You do you. But what's interesting is the grace movement, they ask questions around their core values. 
And then they found that some of their core values didn't stick. So Grace Movement, a good, a good one to point to, and this is like popularized by like Baxter Kruger and John Crowder and a lot of these guys was universalism topic. And they started to open up different concepts around hell. And maybe it isn't eternal torment. Um, and they started to popularize that for a lot of people in the Grace Movement. And that made them very unpopular in a lot of conventional churches. Now, what's interesting is they've done both those first two stages, but they didn't do the third stage. The third stage, what we found, is that people that deconstruct hold on to their new beliefs with no fundamentals. Not no fundamentals, but less fundamentals is probably a better way to put it. They hold on to their new beliefs very loosely. They don't, they live as though they're true, right? You can't really not live as though the things you believe are true, right? That's the only way you can kind of live. If you think it's probably true, then you're going to live as though it's true, right? I'm pretty confident that gravity means that I shouldn't jump out my bedroom window, but I don't actually know I shouldn't jump out my bedroom window, right? I'm just not going to test it. Um, who knows? I could still be on that mushroom trip, you know? Uh, who knows? I'm in the psych ward. Uh, maybe that's why I'm in the psych ward. But that's really interesting, right? Because you guys probably spent enough time in the grace movement, and I spent a good time. In the, I, was, I was a prominent speaker in the grace movement. I'm good friends with most of the people that, that I, I can mention in that. I was as fundamental as I came. I was maybe even more fundamental than I was before the Great uh-huh. Movement. Exactly. I was very black and white. I knew the answers. I knew the rights, the wrongs, the ins, the outs, the yes, the no. I knew how to draw that line and what was black and what was white. And that is missing. Generally speaking, when we look across the deconstruction community, we see a massive shift where people hold things much less fundamental. Now that does track with time. So people that are very new in their deconstruction tend to still have quite a lot of fundamental um, dynamics in their personality and their uh, way of seeing the world. But that over time tends to decrease rapidly and drastically. Uh, and what's really interesting, so another aside, and this is a pet project, man, I love studying psychology, but psychological development theory is, is the branch of psychology that looks at how people develop over time. Uh, and so you'll know uh, child development theory is a most common kind of one that you'll come across. And we can look at children at certain ages and go, oh, a kid as a baby doesn't know that there's a world and there's a it. It just thinks everything is it. In fact, a baby can bite its finger and bite a blanket and it doesn't know that a difference is going on. That's kind of mental. And that's a long time. I think it's about like six or seven months before it can recognize a difference. Yeah. Which exactly. to me is like, you idiots, you just bit your finger. Come on. You know? <laughs> but, you know, you're six minutes. So I'll cut you some slack, right? And, but, just, you know, come on, come on, baby, an idiot. I love oh, this baby so idiots all day. Who are we kidding? You like, six month old idiot. God. Idiot. Right? But, but this is actually quite a key point to psychological development. We'll return yeah. to this point of calling a baby an idiot. Remind me. Um, <laughs> Please do. Bring it back up. It's important. Um, <laughs> but then at three, you start to see a real development where the, where the child, the toddler, really starts to understand there's a me here and there's a you. And I actually don't like it when I don't get my way. Actually, I want my way and I'm going to stand up for my way. And this is when you start seeing them screaming no and, you know, having tantrums and things. Because they suddenly have an identity and they are attached to that identity getting what it wants. But then as you develop a bit more, almost all children around the age of five or six, it's a very small percentage, it's like 0.07 or something that have complete sociological issues. Uh, uh, What's the right word? Uh, Yeah, sociopaths, that's one. Um, Those people don't develop empathy. But 99 point whatever percent develop empathy around the age of five or six, maybe girls usually a bit earlier than boys, generally speaking, if we're going to be 
uh, binary about it. Um, but generally speaking, you can look at a child and go, oh, they're eight, they're going to have empathy. Yeah. Oh, they're four, they can't mm-hmm. have empathy. It just yeah. isn't going to happen yet. Maybe a really advanced child, maybe, but the human brain hasn't developed that much. The point being, we look at these models and we can see how a child develops. We can look at adults. We know that, that, that a human brain doesn't become an adult until about 24, 25. That's why it's bloody terrifying that we're marrying at 18. We haven't even finished our brain. Like, what the hell are we doing, right? You know, like, I think there should be a rule, like, at least wait till your brain's finished before you make any big decisions, <laughs> right, right? right? Like, that's, that's, like just that's solid. That's solid. <laughs> right. But the point being, okay, that there's other branches of development theory. There's branches like moral development. Colbert did an, uh, an incredible work looking at how, as humans evolve, their morals change. They develop. They become more moral as you generally seen by humans. So we start thinking that we only are moral to avoid punishment. And then we grow up and we become only moral to get rewards. And then we grow up and we go, we're actually only largely moral so that we can fit in with the group. And then we grow up and go, oh, I'm only moral because those are the rules. And then we grow up and go, oh, I'm moral because it's the right thing to do. And, and we continue to grow through these stages, and that goes right through adulthood. So you'll know lots of adults are probably only good because they don't want to get punished, right? right. I mean, those are the scary ones, and actually a lot of them are in churches, mm-hmm. um, right? Because God will punish them. Um, so all that to say that we're seeing these developmental stages. Well, there's popular developmental stages on how the brain develops and how it sees itself. The person sees themselves, called ego development theories. And in these, what we see is people, as they grow through these stages, more and more and more, they become less and less and less binary. They become less and less and less fundamental. They become less and less conventional. And so really, what we're probably seeing with deconstruction, it goes right back to the how we think changes. As you grow up, as you change, it's it's impossible to be fundamental as you keep growing if you're healthy. Um, but if you don't grow up, you're you're going to be fundamental. That's just the way you are. And this is why you shouldn't call a baby an idiot, right? What <laughs> right. you you think you think a baby can do di- different, right? What you think a three year old can have empathy? This is why like child development psychologists laugh at parents, right? Because parents are like, oh. Look at Timmy. Oh, he, he knew his sister's feelings for her. No, he actually doesn't have the capacity to understand his sister is a different person right now. That's not right. going to develop for a long time. So it's funny because parents don't want to hear that shit, right? Because no, no, like, <laughs> <laughs> children are always so special, but they don't realize yeah. it until they're like two years old. Yeah, well, until, right. you know, I remember going to a college course. As well, which is kind of scary. <laughs> um, but, but the point is that you wouldn't judge a two-year-old for not knowing this. No. Five-year-old for not knowing something else. You would someone at university for not knowing this. Your brain is still developing, right? right? Whatever. And so the point is that I think we should be careful about judging those that are still in conventional spaces. They're, they just haven't developed the way of thinking that allows them not to be conventional and fundamental. In the same way that we recognize that we probably aren't done either. If we look at these models, most of us, when we read through these models, we'll probably find we hit a point where we start to feel uncomfortable, and that's usually when we found how far we've got. And as we keep, we're like, these people are insane. I'm not going to be like that. These, they're the evil ones or whatever it is, right? Um, and so it's, it's natural that we continually grow up. So as a really long answer, but I think it's really important we understand this is a, a, a documented way of, this is, this is normal psychological development. Deconstruction is normal. Um, crazy because our whole worlds were wrapped up in this one identity of faith. And so everything collapses, but it's a normal process. And that, maybe that's, maybe that speaks. It's to me. It speaks to the toxicity of the structure. Then 
you know, because the fact that there is so much at risk for those of us who dare to answer these questions speaks to the cult-like nature of some of these churches. I say a lot of these churches have, have very cult-like tendencies. Um, it shouldn't cost you your livelihood or your family or your well-being or even your life um, for those who to to have the audacity to question some things within, you know, you wouldn't have the same dynamic necessarily inside of your family. I don't know. It just seems strange. So, so to me, it speaks more to the, to the inherent toxicity of the structure that it cannot be questioned without resulting in catastrophe, the person for the person who asks, you know, and one of the reasons that I knew that the grace movement was, was doomed to fail because just like the emergent church was sort of doomed to fail, just like the word of faith movement was doomed to fail, was because they all seemed to exit out of a fundamentalism structure and then go right back into a fundamentalism of their own. And the next thing you know, these guys who were, yeah, I, you, I'm sure we could all name the same names, um, the guy, but the guys who were so you know, adamant about God being a God of love and grace and forgiveness and mercy were still clinging to things like, Hell is eternal conscious torment as penal substitutionary atonement. And so, and they got really, really dogmatic about their, their version of things. I've gotten kicked out of way more many, way, way more grace groups than I ever got kicked out of fundamentalist groups. And so that was when I knew I'm like, you know what? This is not a, this is not a healthy thing. You know, it's a movement that's going to move and it's going to end up changing. Um, time will tell if whatever this is right now, deconstruction, I think it's actually, to me, it feels like, almost like almost an extension of the emergent church of say 20 years ago. Like it kind of went dormant for a little while and it feels like this is more, to me it has the flavor and it has the sense of that, um, of just being willing to push boundaries and ask questions and do things differently. And it, and as long as that continues and, and those questions are still encouraged and we don't land someplace, you know, super, super concrete and fundamental and we don't start kicking each other's asses over, over our own differences of opinion, I think this particular iteration has some has some staying power, but again, I won't. We, we won't know for. I was telling John, what did we say on a couple couple podcast episodes ago that when I start seeing, you know, first church of the deconstructed, I'll know we've effed it up pretty good. And we're moving on to something else. <laughs> yeah, <you know>? yeah. <laughs> well, and I I think another part that I think just we need to acknowledge, and I think we could. I don't know if there's any data on this or not, but so deconstruction is the word now, right? And so I keep bringing up my, my story of, okay, I did this 30 plus years ago. I'm finding more and more people as we start talking to people that they did this like 30 years ago too. Yeah. They just didn't have a word for it. Right. Right. We did. Well, yeah. I mean, that's the, that's, that's the simplest answer, right? That we just didn't have a word for it. But I think there are these, I don't want to say covert groups, but this group of people that were, that were already there. So like I'm, you know, when I'm kind of coming out and saying, Hey, I, I'm really, I'm really having issues with some of these things. I'm talking to someone who said, yeah, I did this 30 years ago too, you know, but I just didn't, there was no church for me to step back into. And uh, I just don't know if there's, uh, you know, if there's even any kind of data on these older, longer deconstruction this, right? I, I don't know because, you know, as, as I decided to step back into some kind of faith, I felt, and Nat knows the story too, that I felt like, okay, I have to get back into church now because, you know, if I have faith again, I have to go to church. That's part of it. And I tried and God, I tried. <laughs> I tried it for like two and a half years and it's just, and I just, it's just, I just don't fit in. And so 
I, I, I don't know if there's like this, uh, this, like now saying the emergent church is still like, this is, this is, feels like kind of maybe part of that. I think we can go back even to like the Jesus, the Jesus movement of the seventies and say, okay, that was part of this. We can go back to the hippie movement of the sixties. That was part of this. It was always a group of people who were willing to say, wait, hold on. I don't really get what, what you guys are saying. And it doesn't really seem to fit with just the nature of the way we treat each other in society. And that seems to be right. like an underlying issue that kind of pops up, right? You know, before it was maybe with, you know, the anti-war. You know, we were, you know, fighting against the Vietnam War. Then it became, you know, the civil rights movement. And then and these all seem to be groups of people who have to leave the church because of these, like you said, social issues. It seems like that's a much stronger and longer lasting version of deconstruction, if that makes sense at all. Yeah, well, that, that's the thing, right? So this, this title, deconstruction, like I said, we're, we're attributing a phenomenon, a, a term to a phenomenon of going from one stage of psychological development into another. And the simple fact is there are so many different stages. Um, and so generally speaking, you're going to find that with different stages, there comes a different process of deconstruction. It's going to look different because you're going to be deconstructing different things, right? So maybe if you're less developed, um, you're going to be uh, deconstructing. Maybe we shouldn't hit our neighbor over the head if we want his TV, right? You know, that's that's a state of psychological development. You know, it's not much different from the toddler, maybe. Um, but, you know, so we have these stages of development and you are going to see, if you look at the church through history, you're going to see them go through different stages where they're wrestling with some of these issues, right? Wrestling with slavery, wrestling with whatever it might be, colonization and things like that. And some of these things we're still wrestling with, right? And, or at least dealing with the, the after effects or dealing with the underlying issues that aren't so surface. Um, and so, yeah, absolutely. There's, there's a lot of data on what's, how people have left church over the, the decades. I mean, what's happening right now in, in America with this massive decline in people that identify as Christian or even attend church, um, that happened in Europe 70 years ago, right? I mean, post-World War II, Europe was a very, very Christian world. Like it was, it was almost 100% Christian identified. And it feels like overnight in a, in a uh, sociological history timeline, we're talking a few decades, Europe became, you know, in some places, single-digit Christian, percentage-wise. That's astonishing, right? There's places in my home, uh, my hometown up in Scotland, under 5% identify as Christian. That's, that's a small number for a, con- for a town that 70 years ago would have been in the 90%. 70 years is not a long time for that kind of shift. Now, what's interesting is if you look at 70 years ago, you start asking that question. You go, is God really going to burn Barbara down the street in hell forever because she's a different type of Christian than me? If she was weird. Or, or is God really going to burn um, the Christians in Germany who were on the wrong side of the war versus the Christians here that were on the right side? Oh, that seems kind of... Weird. Like, or why did they not hear from God and hear that they were wrong? And we heard from God and we went to war. Like, why is God only speaking to half the Christians? Or they're asking these big questions, right? What the hell do you do if it's 1949 and you have a question about the, the nature of God? And you know, going to your pastor and asking it means you're fucked. Asking <laughs> your partner means you're screwed. Asking your friends means you're screwed. Talking about it in church means you're screwed. 
maybe go to a library? Maybe? Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, the options are limited. And then even if you go to a library, it's not like, you know, people are bashing out what is the Bible by Rob Bell kind of books, right? Nice, easy, <laughs> accessible theology. You're looking at like reading some heavy, boring ass crap from like the 18, 17, 1600s that means nothing to you. And um, your options were limited. And so really what happened on the whole, as we track this phenomenon through Europe, is people just went, well, I guess I'm not a Christian then. And just went from Christianity to atheism. Now, you track forward, move forward towards where progressive Christianity, uh, emergent church starts coming on, on board, and we start to see um, a church that's asking these new social questions. I know we've skipped kind of like the, the civil movement. I mean, liberation theology and liberation Christianity, oh, yeah. very huge in the black church, and actually probably a large part of why the black church in America has the lowest numbers of deconstructing Christians. Mm. Now, it's possible as well that they identify less with a bunch of white men who have decided to have podcasts about deconstruction, but it's also possible they've actually done some serious theological and sociological work where they don't have to deconstruct as much of their faith, right? Because they're not dealing with exclusive issues where they hate their neighbor over stupid, petty shit that the white evangelical church down the road is, right? Whatever it might be. Um, the point being that as we move forwards, we have more and more options for people to do. So even back then, there wasn't much, but there was. it was in the news. Martin Luther was sharing his sermons in papers, and people would read these liberating thoughts about how to see Jesus and, and, and the black man and, and, and these big topics that were challenging people how they thought. Move forward to the immersion church. Now you've got just, just the cusps. First year or two of the internet, so not much. But there's some d- discussion online. But much more important, you've got books proliferating. There's books everywhere about this topic. You can go into your Christian bookshop, or if not a Christian bookshop, a regular bookshop, and pick up a book that says, "God does God really send people to hell? Right? Oh, whoa. who wrote the Bible? And you open up and you, re- you can learn about these theological topics that theologians over the last 200 years have been piecing together that the Bible wasn't written by the people it says it was. Moses didn't write the first five books. We think it's these different documents that have been pieced together. And you can engage these things. Fast forward 10, 20 years. Now we're in the early 2000s, maybe 2010. Fuck, I mean, my pastor asks a question. I, I, I talk to kids these days and they go, oh, I started deconstructing because my news pastor said it was wrong to have sex before marriage and it's in the Bible. And I just pulled my phone out and said, is it wrong to have sex before marriage? Where's the Bible verse? And they said, there is no Bible verse. And I thought, well, fuck this. I'm out. This guy knows nothing. Like, that guy deconstructed in the space of a Google. Like one sentence Google probably didn't even read the bloody article. Probably just saw the description that says there is no Bible verse in like a bold or something. And was like, well, <laughs> the on Google and was like, oh, fuck this guy. He knows nothing. Like that's the age we live in. And then not only that, why well, he clicks, why well, he types like, you know, well, what are the different views on sex before marriage? What are the different views on hell? The top five results are Facebook groups going Christians that don't believe in hell or whatever, right? And then they click on the group and they go, whoa, there's 20,000 people that don't believe in hell. And there's a lot more than that, right? Um, it, and, and so we're in a time where that hard shift from Christian to atheist as the only real option, or maybe just going, well, I'm an agnostic. I don't really know, but I guess Christianity's not for me because the only Christianity available to me is clearly wrong. Now we live in this world where there's so much gray space. And I think that's what deconstruction, and I think that's why this new term has come up, because deconstruction captures everything. So you can be in the church, you can be out the church, you can be Christian, you can be atheist, you can be agnostic, you can be Buddhist. 
deconstruction can capture you all in a way that dechurched or disaffiliated or deconverted doesn't. Those are very small minorities within a broader term of deconstruction. But deconstruction just means I came from this place and I'm going somewhere else. It doesn't mean anything beyond I'm going somewhere else and I'm less fundamental, right? So this is a, this is the problem. It's a bit like herding cats, right? Because then you go, you've got like, you know, Julie over here and Steve over there and they're all going, this is how you should deconstruct and everything. And you're like, these people clearly are not, they've not got it yet. They're still fundamental. They're still thinking, I know the way to deconstruct. I deconstruct in a certain way and everyone else will be like me. There's no way everyone else is going to be like you. But that's the beauty of, I think, something like deconstruction is there's space for all of this uh, smorgasbord of spirituality. Um, And so I think that's what's unique about this. It's not that people haven't gone through this internal process of changing how they think and then in turn changing what they think, but they've got the tools to do that process, but also recognize they're not alone and start to build identities around that process. And I think this is a new identity that we didn't have in the same way that liberation theology didn't really exist up until maybe the, you know, 1800s, 1700s, maybe. You know, these are, these are new concepts that are being coined by slaves coming out of slavery, escaping slavery, even within slavery, writing and thinking and preaching. And, you know, probably not even writing because they weren't even allowed to be educated, but they're, they're thinking about their theology. They're thinking about this Jesus that their, that their captors have taught them about. And they're reinterpreting this passage and going, wait. How on earth do our captors talk about how God sets slaves free and they keep us as slaves? Yeah. Surely yeah. God is better than that, right? Whatever it might be, like these concepts have always been going on, but the possibility to attach a label to them has become so great. Doesn't matter what you believe, you can probably find your people now. It's still quite hard to find your people, I think, but it is there. It is, it is but, but I, it, it's weird because it seems to me then, on at least on some level, that because the tools exist to have those questions, to find other people who share those questions, to have a way to articulate what you're feeling, actually probably gives people th- something to hold on to rather than just jettison the whole thing altogether. I think what you would have seen a hundred years ago is people just saying, like you said, well, I'm just not a Christian anymore then. And now what you find are people who are like, well, okay, if me, if being a Christian means I can be this, okay, then yeah, I'm still that. And and I'm with John. I'm with John. I'm moving closer and closer to, to not having much use for the word Christian, but I can still, I can still hold to the tenets of to to many of the tenets of that faith and say, okay, yeah, but I, but I still believe this, 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 this. I just, for me, the label doesn't hold the same utility anymore. You know, matter of fact, for in a lot of ways, it's more of an impediment because then I have to spend the next twenty minutes explaining what I don't mean by the word Christian. Um, but yeah, so if. And once again, you know, the people who are, who are invested heavily in conventional Christianity, the people who are invested heavily in church, conventional church, they're always scared, you know, of whatever the next thing is because they're always, but if they were smart, if they had a little bit of, you know, I'm, I'm giving you some free advice, church people, that if you would simply, but if you were listening, I would say, listen, chill the fuck out. Let your people ask the questions, create and hold space for people who don't believe everything you do. And dear God, I mean, give them a reason to stay, um, mm-hmm. you know, rather than threatening them if they leave. You know, I would, that, I would just, problem. I would just put this out to this, those people as well. Go back and think about when you're in high school and think about your favorite teachers, the ones that you go, that you remember. 
And I guarantee you, those teachers were the ones that allowed for dialogue, allowed for your opinions, allowed for something to be other than you sitting in a room and being lectured to. I guarantee Mm -hmm. if you really were to think about the teachers that you remember as someone who was important to you, they're going to be people who respected you, you know, respected your opinion, uh, allowed for dialogue. I guarantee it. And then we go Mm -hmm. into a church and we act like that's no longer even important. Right, right. Well, because again, you, you, the, the school teacher, well, they're not God ordained. Well, but they're, you know, I, I taught school for many years. There was no, there was no fear that the kid was going to walk out of my classroom. I'd drag his ass back in there. Um, the preacher has to be worried all the time, you know, and that's part of my issue with, with, um, especially the Western evangelical structure of churches is that, is that these guys, you know, these poor guys are trying to make a living, you know, yeah. and so they're beholden on some level yeah. to, to, to certain things and they get really, really scared. Most of the people that I know who are in this, who, whose livelihoods depend on this, um, they live in a fairly constant state of at least some level of fear that it's all going to go away. And there are some of the most likely to deconstruct. So yeah. the thing is, the data is out there very strongly. That So this is a fascinating thing. I often tell people, uh, I just spoke again, like I said uh, a while back, um, to someone from the Gospel Coalition who's writing a book and says, you know, what would you tell people in the church? To, to If our pastor's saying, what can I do to help people not deconstruct? Like, what can I do? And I says, as best you can, try as much as possible to keep people lukewarm. Like, because the data out there is that if you grab a hundred people at deconstruct and you look at when they were in the church and then you look at a hundred people that are in the church today as a conventional Christian on average, on average, the people at deconstruct, they read their Bible more, they prayed more, they attended church more, they were more likely to volunteer, they're more likely to be on staff, they're more likely to have a Bible degree, they're more likely to have gone to seminary, they're more likely to be a pastor. They were the most committed people in your church by every metric on the whole. Now there's outliers. There are some people that deconstruct that aren't, but on average, when we look at people who are conventionally in the church and happy versus people that deconstruct, it skews massively over this way. And so this is why, you know, you look at the data, it's really astounding. They're more likely to be Christian educated, so to go to a Christian high school or private school, or and much more likely to be home educated as well. Um Basically, the more intense you can make someone a Christian, the more passionate you can be about being Christian, the more likely you are to deconstruct. And certainly if you're a pastor, you're very likely to deconstruct. And so I always say to the people in the church, if you really want to keep people in, kind of do a really average job at getting them excited about Jesus. Mm-hmm. Just kind of <laughs> just keep them in the pew. Yeah. Kind of like tick the box, but don't get them too involved. Don't get them too excited. Definitely don't get them reading the Bible too much. Don't get them so involved in the church that they X, Y, and Z. Now, you can argue why all these things lead to deconstruction, but they do. Um, and so it's a really fascinating dynamic. Um, uh, we did a study recently. So there was a study in, by Pew Research, and they looked at uh, different groups of Christianity and how well they knew the Bible. Now, it's funny, right? Because... Um, I don't know if you follow me on Instagram. I posted the results a couple of months ago, but they did um, a study and they, they asked six basic Bible questions to conventional Christians. And so there's like Mormons, there's evangelical, the Christians hate that Mormons are included sociologically <laughs> <Right>. as Christians, <laughs> but it's funny. Um, so there's Mormons, there's your witnesses, there's evangelical Christians, there's mainline church, there's Catholic, Orthodox, um, you name it, the black, historically black church, you know, all these different subsets of Christianity. Now, the evangelical church scored the highest on these six questions that the Pew Research put out. Now, 
to give you an idea of the questions, right? We'll see how you do. They're things like, what? Sorry, who did David kill with his sling and stone? Hard question. You got, got any ideas? Um, I'm going to go right? with um, John no, Baptist. Google. They <laughs> <Right? laughs> <laughs> really threw that stone. Um, now, apart from, the, uh, yeah, apart from the technical inaccuracies where I don't think he actually killed Goliath with the stone, did he? He actually cut his head off and that was what killed him. He just took him down with the stone. But apart from that, you know, there's questions yeah. like, who killed, who did he kill? Question like, where was Jesus born? Right? I mean, how many Christians do you know that didn't know Bethlehem? Turns out the best group, the highest score, joint first place, Mormons and Evangelicals, which I find really fun, um, 74% on the six questions. They scored 74%. So I ran a very informal study, uh, very uh, informal poll, and I polled about 967 people that identify as deconstructing. I said, if you identify as deconstructing, please answer the following six questions. They got 91%. Some of these people have been not read the Bible for 10 years, and they're scoring better than people that are in evangelical churches who are the most well-scored Christians. And so the point being, again and again and again, even in informal studies like that, we find again and again that people that deconstruct were the people that knew the Bible best. They were the most passionate Christians. They were the ones that threw themselves into this. Um, it's a fascinating dynamic, um, and it just doesn't really add up if you're a Christian, if you're a pastor, um, trying to feel safe, right? How do you feel safe in an environment where your one job is to make people more like you? You being you makes you very potentially going to deconstruct. And the amount of pastors I talk to week in, week out, I, every day goes by and I, not a day goes by and I speak to a pastor who's deconstructing and is terrified, doesn't know what to do, how to navigate their whole livelihood. They are so deep in a hole of they make a good salary, most pastors, generally speaking, in America, certainly it's different in Europe and in some of the other parts of the world. But in America, even like a rural pastor generally makes a good salary. Um, and they have their health insurance. They've got a home with a mortgage. They've got kids. They've got college payments. They've got all this stuff. And they have no transferable skills in the grand scheme of things. Now, a lot of being a pastor can translate into a lot of things, I'm sure. sure. But you can't just walk into it. Yeah, right? <laughs> All kinds of stuff you can do. I mean, <laughs> sell insurance. You're not likely to walk into a business and go, I was a pastor. Could you give me a job straight out the door that pays $60,000, $70,000 a year? Sure. I mean, that's just not going to happen. Pastors I know so how do you, what do you do? Yeah. Well, they would just say, well, I'm qualified to be a CEO. Look at what I've done over here. But, but right. anecdotally, I can tell you, um, <laughs> you know, I was, I was, um, I was, I mean, I was, I was a deeply, deeply, deeply committed church going Christian, you know, and, and, and I think the danger there, I think you're exactly right, by the way. I think you, I think you keyed in on something and I think it's, it's funny. Um, if you want to keep people in your church, keep them lukewarm. Um, because I was, I was deeply committed, which made the wounding that I experienced at the hands of the church that much more traumatic, which made the questions you know, that I was given on the, the pat things that were supposed to work that when they didn't work, it made that much more, that much more traumatic for me. Yeah, it was, it was because I was so much more heavily invested than in sort of average, you know, sort of nonchalant churchgoer. And I had, I'd have these long conversations with people that were friends of mine that were in church together. And they were like, 
eh, I, I had long conversations with my pastor about things that were troubling me and bothering me. And I'm like, doesn't this, hadn't you ever thought about, and, and it was like, no, no, I'm, I'm good. And they were blissfully happy. You know what? And, and far be it for me to upset their apple cart, man. Do it, do, do your thing. But, I, but so I think that's that, that thing of like, for them, it was still working. Yeah. You know, and, and for us, and, it at some point, I think we forget right. that part. We, we reimagine the way we think today as we always thought that like that. But right. Right. But didn't, right. For a long time, this worked. In right. some for, it, was only, it was only a couple of years or whatever, but. It works. And until if it it's working, and I, I was thinking back on this a little bit, I, the, one of the big churches I was involved in years ago, um, man, I loved it. It was great until it wasn't. And I can pinpoint the moment when it wasn't, but, you know, and, and then all of a sudden, when, it, and when things started to unravel for me there, I started seeing all the problems. Mm-hmm. The issue was they weren't problems for me. And so I didn't see them. I wasn't right. I wasn't affected by those things. I was fine. Pastor and I got along great. We didn't have any, you know, didn't have any issues with one another until I, you know, dared to ask him to read a book by Brian McLaren and he lost his mind on me. Um, <laughs> so, you know, we'll have Brian on the show yeah. here pretty soon. I can't wait to tell him that story that he almost oh, got excited from an evangelical church. Um, uh, but, you know, yeah. but I think you're right. I mean, that's <laughs> now I kind of want to write a book about, hey, dear church, if you want to, Keep people inside the building. Keep them lukewarm. <laughs> I think the thing is as well, though, it's structure that people are throwing themselves into. So, like, yeah, I think so. The reason it fails is if you give yourself everything you've got to something that's rigidly black and white. Mm-hmm. Well, if you just look at it closely enough, eventually that's going to snap. It just is going to yeah, break because yeah. the world isn't black and white. Right. Um, and so, at a certain point, it breaks. But I think this is the beauty of creating spaces that aren't these black and white fundamental spaces because you can give everything to that. And it goes whatever way it needs to go. And it allows people to give everything and go in a way that is healthy and whole for them. And it doesn't need to, um, uh, to step on the toes of anyone else's path necessarily. We can all do that together. And it doesn't need to break as a system. Um, and I think, yeah, I mean, you know, quote Bible, Jesus wineskins or whatever, you know, like, but, you know, there's this flexibility and inflexibility. And I think that's the key. When so much of the Western evangelical church is predicated on their ability to provide answers, that's their, they're, they're, they're like, this just works, do this and this works. And they make all these, you know, audacious promises, you know, um, that's why they got me, that's how they got me to tithe so damn much. Cause you know, they promised me I was going to get my money sevenfold, you know, I was going to get a, you know, they, but they, they promised healing. They promised all these things. And so they've set themselves up. For problems, because they've guaranteed certain outcomes and only left themselves tiny little loopholes of like, well, well, you just didn't pray right. You know, you didn't pray the, you know, um, so again, when when those things, when those, when those cards begin to fall, you know, the whole structure collapses in on itself because, well, if I can't trust that, then what part of this can I trust? And so, um, again, most of the wounds that the church feels like it's suffering are self-inflicted. Um, and I like your idea that if they if they would build a, for lack of a better term, a more malleable structure, you know, rather than like some like like it has to it has to fit this form and look like this, and yeah, I think they would find themselves in a greater degree of peace. But it's a it's a great topic, and you know, you know, for for part of it for me is you know, Nat and I have talked about RDE construction a lot, and I would rather you know, I I'm much rather hear your your view on a lot of these things than you know, kind of say my step again, uh, you have some really interesting information and knowledge that um, 
you know, it really does come into play. And it, I, I think it's really interesting. So, well, you know, the, the angle that you come at this with, Phil, that I think is unique is the data. Um, yeah. Which is that, that, that's, yeah. I mean, I've talked to a lot of people about deconstruction. Um, and, and I think most of us have an intuition about what you're quantifying with some, with some data, which is great. So we'll, we'll link to everything in the show notes. Um, uh, we appreciate you coming. Thank you so much for everything that you do. We'll say goodbye. And until next time. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.